Hello, I'm Emily Muller and this is Adrian Bunger and welcome to the Superposition podcast. This week we had the opportunity to make a visit to the South African Large Telescope in Sutherland. You may have been following the news on the recent launch of the Meerkat Telescope on the 13th of July and all the goings-on of the Square Kilometre Array happening right here in South and Southern Africa. We chatted with two members of SALT on the ground and brought back a little bit of scientific wonder to stargazing for you listeners, so enjoy. We are superpositioning with two delightful gentlemen at the South African Large Telescope, also known as SALT in the Sutherland. Will you please go ahead and introduce yourself to Mullen? Okay, uh, my name is Ethan Milling, Monachin, and I'm an astronomer here working for SALT and the South African Astronomical Observatory. Thank you. Um, hi, my name is Anthony Mitters, and I'm actually communicating the kind of science that you can learn I'm involved in here at the South African Astronomical Observatory. So can you first tell us exactly what is the SALT Telescope? Okay, so SALT is, um, as the name says, South African Large Telescope. It's a 10-meter class telescope, optical telescope, so um, it's a it's the biggest telescope in the southern hemisphere so it works on optical wavelengths and yeah it does all kinds of science so so what kind of like if it's optical what kind of other telescopes are there yeah available okay so because as you might know light is broken up into different wavelengths right so we have radio emission from sources outside we have infrared emission ultraviolet optical and then the higher energy X-ray and gamma ray um, emission. So, um, SALT works on the optical wavelengths. So these are similar wavelengths that our eyes, human eyes, work on. So it covers that part of the spectrum. So if I remember correctly, the human eye is from about 400 to about 800, is that right? Yeah, 400 to 800 nanometers. Nanometers, yeah. right? And But okay. SALT can do? So around that, so okay. between 3,800 or so okay. angstroms okay. or 380 nanometers to about 8,000 angstroms or 800 nanometers. Okay. And what are the two things that, um, or the two or more things that one can really analyze with uh, salt? Okay, so with salt you can get um, imaging uh, and then you can get spectroscopy. So what um, imaging is, it's just normal imaging of sources outside. Um, and then you can get spectroscopy, which is basically uh, measuring, um, you know, things like chemical compositions of stars and galaxies and planets and comets and stuff like that. So basically checking which elements are there in objects outside. And, um, and from there you can get lots of information, like, you know, the chemical composition of stars or how fast objects are moving and how big things are. Things things expand and they contract and how fast that happens and if it's happening at all. Mm. So you can get lots of information from the data that you're using. Crazy. So I'd like, I want, I'm keen to go back to that stuff, but uh, Anthony, I'd love to ask you a question. What are the major discoveries that uh, SALT has found so far? The, um, the biggest one that SALT has been involved in, I think it was last year, around October, November. Mm -hmm the gravitational wavelengths that they've been involved in, and maybe people can tell you a little bit more about that. Yeah, so... But SALT played a pivotal role in that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, this was a big discovery of gravitational waves. Um, this was something that was predicted a long time ago by Einstein. 
and for the first time this was detected with LIGO. Um, so then other telescopes. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> LIGO. <laughs> so LIGO is a is an instrument, um, a large instrument which detects, which is built specifically to detect gravitational wave events. Um, so it's basically hearing uh, space, things in space. So a gravitational wave event is um, a merger of neutron stars or black holes. So this has never been um, discovered before until last year. So then this was discovered and then sought, um, obtained optical follow-ups of this. So we got an optical spectrum of this, which was which was fun. So, uh, excuse my ignorance, I have no idea what this thing is. Mm -hmm. um, so is it like a, a ripple? And so there's, like for a period of time, there will be more gravity in a certain area as the wave passes. Is that an accurate description? Well, it's more of, so when, think about it as a rubber sheet, right? If I put two uh, compact objects orbiting very fast around each other around the rubber sheet, they send out waves around this rubber sheet. So that's basically what we were detecting with LIGO, and then the spectrum of it um, with salt. So these waves are observable by the human eye, in essence, because it is an optical telescope. Yeah, so we, we were able to get a spectrum, at least, of them. We can't see it, you know, mm -hmm. but we, we can um, kind of get a gauge of it through spectrum. So when you say spectrum, does that mean like spectroscopy, or is it yeah. so? Spectroscopy, um, if I remember correctly, is basically looking at composition, right? By looking at absorption spectra um, by elements, right? So basically figuring out how things in the universe are, uh, uh, what they are made up of, what are they composed of. So using spectrum, how does one look at gravitational waves? Does it change the composition? I mean, no, it's, it doesn't change anything. We're just basically getting information of, of what is there. Okay. So, for example, we got we got a gauge of how heavy elements are made. Um, you know, elements heavier than like gold, for example. So this was this was also seen as part of this spectrum. So this is a huge thing, like South African telescope playing a part in gravitational waves. Yeah. Like I remember it was a massive buzz. Was it 2015? No, no, last year. Was, last it, year. Just, was it just last year? Yeah. So we had a huge media release on that. Yeah. Mm. And so are there other institutes, like, is this a common, like, phenomenon that people are able to observe the spectrum of gravitational waves? Or is it something very unique? Well, because it was the first time, um, we we got a confirmation of a gravitational wave event. So, you know, this was this is the first time this happened. But yeah, other institutions would be able to um, to get this as well. Um, but that's the nice thing about salt: the fact that we got information and we were able to quickly point to it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's that's one of the uh, unique advantages of salt: um, being able to you know cling on quickly onto cool events happening. But you know, not just this, this salt has done lots of cool science, um, as you can see by the number of papers published through salt data, mm -hmm. and the different kinds of sciences that happen. So it Do does, you have an idea of the number of papers that were published um, salt? I can't say working in a facility of four, one from salt and three from the same Because I remember that the director was mentioning something about 36 papers okay. per month. 
Wow. That's really far-reaching. It's a lot of papers, yeah. It's a lot of papers because it does a lot of different sciences. So, um, from stellar astrophysics to planetary astrophysics to galactic astrophysics. So, lots of different groups. As long as you're doing astronomy, you can basically use salt somehow for your science. Um, Anthony, so how do you go about uh, communicating this kind of science to the public? Is it mainly press releases? How do, how do you get the science out to the world? So it's like, it's, we use different methods of doing that, depending on the target audience. This was a very high level discovery that was made. So that was in the form of a media press release with, with those that were actually involved providing the initial information. But then we have to, what we offer on site is we do different tours to our facility. So we have to target our audience. It's very difficult because you get mixed audiences quite a number of occasions. So you have to pitch at a level which is understandable. Um, and the, the, the most prominent people that visit our facility is general public members. Nearly 15,000 per year. 15,000? 15, 15,000 per year. Wow. So, okay, we're really excited as well because today was the launch of Mirka. Friday the 13th of yes. July. So, and SKA is popping, everybody's talking about it, everybody's really excited. Can you please tell us, with little knowledge of what's happening, what is going on with SKA, Meerkat, and Salt as telescopes? What are they measuring? And what, what are their differences? You should just know that before Meerkat, a month ago, we launched Meerkat as well. Okay. So that's the one on the optical side, which is a consortium between South Africa and UK partners and some Netherlands partners. That was sort of a link on the optical side that will collaborate with MIRCAC, which is on the radio spectrum side. So that one was launched, I think, here a month ago. And today we have the big launch of MIRCAC. Before MIRCAC, of course, there was a prototype called CAT7. It was very important before the South African government could bid for SKA that they could demonstrate that we have the necessary skills and experience and expertise in South Africa to do that. Because radio astronomy was, was one of the areas that wasn't that big in South Africa. Right? Well, we didn't have the necessary infrastructure, we only had heart around. Yeah. And then there was a lot of collaboration with the HAS telescope in Namibia. So to do this prototype, it was CAT7. CAT7 was in Carnarvon done by South Africans for South Africans. And then later on it was expanded to an array which consisted out of seven of those dishes, which was mainly doing observing the radio frequencies. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was not to use it as a scientific project, but just to demonstrate that South Africa could do this. Mm-hmm. Everything for CAT7 was done internally, but to use that then as the basis to build for SK mm-hmm. as this huge international project, because that will be the world's largest, most powerful radio um, uh, tool that you can use, a telescope. Um, and then the government came and said that even if we bid for SKA and we don't get it, we still want to invest in infrastructure for radio as well. And then mm-hmm. that led to NECA, which is now 64 of those dishes that was launched today. Oh, wow. As a precursor to SKA coming. Which is how many? This came in total will be 2,800 dishes. Wow. Very close. But it will be scattered across Africa, some of them, mm-hmm. with a bulk of them situated where Meerkat is at the moment, mm-hmm. the canal will call it. Mm-hmm. So will Meerkat and SKA then combine, and they're both radio telescopes, yeah. Yeah. will they then combine their 
their outputs. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, um, SKA or Meerkat will grow into SKA okay. um, eventually. Um, so um, to add on to Cat Seven, which was you know just an engineering test bed to demonstrate our capabilities, um, but it's actually done amazing science as well, mm -hmm. like you know more than expected. A lot of papers have been published from Cat Seven data, um, so it's 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 done you know more than it, it was supposed to. Wow. So as I mentioned also with the different um, wavelengths or energy that we get emission. Um, so Meerkat will be great because it's going to be a very sensitive radio um, telescope, radio array, 64 dishes. That's, that's huge. Um, and then Meerlicht over here will be the optical counterpart to Meerkat. So wherever Meerkat is pointing, Meerlicht will be pointing. Mm. So whatever information we get in the radio, we're going to be getting it simultaneously in the optical. Mm. Uh, will that always be the case? They will always work together. They will never not be focusing on the same thing. So even if one person sees the radio telescope, another one sees the light, you know, that what is going on. Yeah, Meerlicht is slave to Meerkat. So wherever Meerkat is pointing, Obviously, the radio telescope can work all the time in the daytime, mm -hmm. but the optical only works at night. So Mielef will only access the data at night, but you know that's still gonna um, do great, great science because you know it's gonna complete the picture of um, you know we get information from the radio, which which we don't necessarily see at other wavelengths. Mm -hmm. So getting it simultaneously will will help out a lot. So Timon, can you tell me a bit more about your research and what you're looking at at the moment? Yeah, so my research um, involves um, binary stars, uh, specifically high-mass X-ray binary stars. So there's different kinds of binary stars. You have high-mass X-ray binary stars, low-mass X-ray binary stars, intermediate-mass X-ray binary stars, cataclysmic variables, and so on and so on. Why is it called an X-ray binary star? Well, it's called an X-ray binary star because it's very bright in the X-rays. So when you turn on X-ray telescopes, you get a lot of X-ray emission from these systems. Mm -hmm. And the X-ray emission basically comes about because of the transference of matter from one star to the other one. So when this star is, is um, or when the matter is accreted onto the other star, which is usually the remnant of you know, a dead star, mm -hmm. um, usually you get um, bright X-ray emission. Um, but they not only give off X-ray emission, you also get optical emission, which is basically opt um, emission from the massive star usually, but you can also get some from the accreting star. Mm -hmm. um, so what does a binary star typically look like? Like what, what, what makes it a binary star? Mm. So it's a binary star because stars live in groups. So they're born in groups. Actually, most of the stars that you see at night are in binary or more systems. So triple or binary. It's just that we see them as a single star because the resolution of our eyes is so poor. Mm. And they're so far, you know. So, but the sun doesn't have a partner, right? The sun doesn't have a partner, yeah. Okay. yeah. So there are stars that are in single systems, but a lot of them are in binary or triple or more. It wouldn't be a fun time if there was another star that was like just coming around and we wouldn't be here talking. And I <laughs> so, so yeah, coming back to what they look like. So, can you give me a bit more? Yeah. So, for the stars that I study, 
Um, one is a normal star, but a normal star in a sun-like star where hydrogen or nuclear fusion is still going on, which is the fuel of the star, basically. Um, and then the other one is remnant of a, um, a dead star. So it's a star that is coming towards the end of its life. And what's left is, you know, like a dead star. So the dead star could either be a white dwarf, a neutron star, or a black hole. So it depends on the evolution. What where it ends up depends on the evolutionary path and the initial conditions and so on. Um, so what happens is it looks like one one of the stars, so the normal star, is huge, and then the other one. Technically, they're going around each other, but because the other one is so much bigger than the other one, this, the motion of this one is very small. So it looks like the dead star is going around the big star. And as it's going around, it's transmits you know, accreting matter from that one. So, so when you say accreting, the small star is giving its substance to the big star? Well, accreting meaning the small star is eating up matter from the big star. And why, I mean, like, Pac-Man eats small things, yeah. like big things eat small things. Why is it that a small thing is not eating a big thing? Well, it's basically how it's also another influence of gravity. So there's different types of accretion uh, depending on the conditions in the binary system. So there's a so-called Rochlow overflow. So where there's a, like a theoretical volume of space around each of the stars. So once the massive star overfills this brush lobe, then the matter can flow through what's called an inner Lagrangian point. So we get like a teardrop shape, where the point of the teardrop is where the matter uh, the is being transferred to the small one. But then you also get all other types of accretion. So some stars have, some massive stars have a disk around the equator, and then the, uh, the dead star is then accreting matter from the disk as it's passing through the disk. But then you also get wind accretion, where the massive star is uh, blowing off large amounts of wind. And as this one is going around it, it's accreting matter from this one. So like wind also means like solar flare and that kind of stuff, is that yeah, right? Yeah, solar flare, but in, in crazy um, amounts. Like a lot bigger. Yeah, because these stars are much bigger than the sun. Oh, crazy. Yeah. So these massive stars, they are... Uh, more alive than the little stars, can I say? Yes. So they also will some point, at some point come to the end of their life. Mm -hmm. At which point do they then play that same role with another star? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I said, stars are born in groups. So the way stars work is that they use um, hydrogen in the core as a fuel. And the larger the star, or the more massive the star, the faster it burns its fuel. So usually stars, they're born in groups, let's say a binary system, and they're all live stars. The more massive one will evolve quicker and eventually die off quicker, leaving the other one. This is when the mass transfer, this is the phase now that I study. Mm -hmm. And then later on, when this one also runs out of fuel, it will also blow off depending on its mass as well. So if it's a more massive star, it's going to die off in a huge supernova explosion. And then you're going to be left with the a neutron star or black hole. And then these two, now you have a system of two compact objects going around each other. And if it's massive, um, if initially you have massive stars, then you get a system of two neutron stars or two black holes, or a neutron star and a black hole, mm -hmm. where they merge and get gravitational wave events. Mm -hmm. Crazy.
So, like, to make it basic for our listeners, it's like, it kind of looks like a yin-yang, is that right? So it's like, it's like you know, one is evolving around the other, so yes. it's like kind of good and bad. Yeah. And so, like, there are also different, I mean, you've alluded to them, but like, can we, like, um, are, like what are the different types of uh, binary stars? Yeah. And what are their differences? Okay. So, um, so the different types of binary stars, you get the high-mass X-ray binary stars, uh, low mass ones, intermediate ones, intermediate mass. And the different or the characterization to the different clusters depends largely on the donor star or the massive star. So astronomers use a system called the Morgan Keenan system. It's an old system where they classify stars into letters called, well, these letters O, B, E, F, G, K, M. Um, and the classification into a letter depends on the spectral property of the star. So what kind of lines are present in the optical spectrum, in the effective temperature, and the mass, and so on. So the O and B stars are the massive stars. So these are the ones that make up the high-mass X-ray binary systems. And then the um, A, F stars make the intermediate mass, and then anything lower than that are the low-mass X-ray binary. So if, for example, if the sun was in a binary system, it would be a low-mass. Oh, it's really bad because it's such a little messed up. Oh, crazy. And the temperature is solar as well, right? So it's related to the temperature? Yeah, the classification into the different spectral types is related to the surface temperature of the star. And is there a clever way to remember these letters? Yeah, so we use this thing called OPA fine girl or guy kiss me. I'm really interested now because you spoke about gravitational waves and like from what I understand also like theoretical physicists, cosmologists, I don't know, astrophysicists, like everybody's interested in these. Yeah. What is the actual difference in the approach to interest between, for example, astronomy, cosmology, and astrophysics? Okay. So the cosmology and the physics side of things, um, they usually look at the more theoretical side of, of um, objects in the sky. So they'll perform these intimidating calculations and make predictions or try to look at data and then try to come up with a model to explain why the data shows what we see. And then even with astronomers, you get different types of astronomers. You get theoretical astrophysicists, and then you get observational astrophysicists. Some people do both. Um, so the theoretical ones, again, do um, intimidating calculations, and then some people run computer models, so simulations, so basically simulating what we supposed to see based on data. So for example, the binary stars that I mentioned, there are people, even here in South Africa actually, that do computer simulations of these binary systems. And then you get observational astronomers who just work on data, observational data. And the theoreticians will come to solve and start at some point and validate their models using the data from from the SOL telescope. We hope. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if validate is the right word. Um, <laughs> so with theorists, they can either predict stuff or they can create models to explain what observations okay. um, show. So usually when you predict, when you have a model which predicts what's supposed to happen, if the data shows something different, you have to kill your model. Because that's that's the reality. Reality. Yeah. Sure. reality shows you know, something contradicting your model, you have to 
So coming back to your research, if I may, um, so you, you've been looking at mainly optical analysis on these uh, binary stars, is that right? Mainly, yeah. And what, what were you kind of looking at? What were you trying to figure out? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, some stars have, some of these massive stars in binary systems have a disk, um, these are called BD stars. So they have a disk which is very uh, variable, and this disk is actually largely responsible, or, or at the end, that's the, the the property of the system that's responsible for the emission that we get because matter is being accreted from this disk as the compact object goes around it. So we're so using that disk accretion that you were talking yes, about previously. Exactly. Yeah. So it, it literally looks like a yin yang but it's a much smaller side of the yin or the yang, but it's like going through the different... Yeah, like, so okay. one, of the, uh, one of the parts of the yin or yeah. the yang yeah. has a disk, and then the other one is going through that disk. Oh, crazy. So what I'm doing with optical data is that I'm studying the variability of this disk to see what it's doing. Um, so I'm basically creating a picture of what's going on based on this data. Crazy. And another, I do also different types of science using optical data. Mm -hmm. So, um, when we, when an object, a binary system is discovered, say using other telescopes looking at other wavelengths, for example, gamma rays, the mm -hmm. higher energy, mm -hmm. they can discover it there, and then we do follow-ups mm -hmm. with other wavelengths. Mm -hmm. So, what I do then with salt, or what I've done with salt data, is to obtain the orbital parameters. So, in other words, the orbital period. So, so orbital how, period, tell me about that. Yeah. What is that? So, orbital period is how long it takes for the one star to go once around the big star. Mm -hmm. you know, like, for example, us, our orbital period around the sun is 365 days. Mm -hmm. We go once around the sun mm -hmm. every 365 or so days. Mm -hmm. And so, for these stars, what's the range of orbital period? Um, for the Hamas X ray binaries, it can range between four days to 1,300 days. Wow. That's still very fast. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> yeah, because you get um, low mass X-ray binary systems with orbital periods of a few minutes, you know, or a few hours in some, some cases. Okay. So, you know, there's a lot of variation going on there. Yeah. What kind of speed does it mean that these, so let's say four days, this is high mass. What kind of speed does it mean that our small, low mass planet is traveling at around the high mass? I will have to sit down and do that calculation. <laughs> <laughs> I can't give you a number off the top of my head. <laughs> but it's fast. It's very fast, yeah. So with the launch of Meerkat on the 13th of July, uh, what kind of stuff could you learn from it that you wouldn't be able to do with optical? Okay, so as I mentioned before, the my research is on you know, binary systems that give up emission um, at all wavelengths. So for Meerkat, um, which is a radio uh, telescope, so the emission from the binary stars come from different areas. So the optical would come from, the optical light would come from the massive star. So that gives you information about what's going on in the massive star. Mm -hmm. But then radio emission will give you information about a different location, you know, and then higher energy telescopes 
will give you information about you know, another area. So the Meerkat will be very useful to get a gauge of what's going on um, you know, at other parts of, of the language system. And what, what parts would those be? Um, so for example, with gamma-ray binaries, um, these two stars are interacting with each other, so you get you know, wind from the massive star interacting with wind from the small star, and then this interaction will give off all types of emissions. So this will help out in understanding what's going on when, when, when the wind comes through. So you're obviously really passionate about the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you tell us why this science is important? Um, this science is important because, um, first of all, it's interesting, this is a personal bias, uh, but also we get to learn about, you know, um, acceleration events, so we use them as labs, basically, of, you know, how particle acceleration takes place. Um, so, you know, th these are, these are very important to answer the big questions that physicists have been proposing over the years. That we can't really set up on Earth in a lab, you know, because we require extreme conditions. So instead of having a lab on Earth, we have a lab in space. In space. And then we okay. can understand the physics of what's going on with particle acceleration, for example. Okay. So uh, this is... That's interesting. This I is, like this is nice. And also for me personally, it's important because um, you know we use different types of telescopes, so it's a nice coming together of different facilities across uh, across Earth to understanding the big picture of what's going on with these systems. Yeah, sure. And how do you see South Africa's involvement in the worldwide science that mm. we're taking that's taking place in astronomy? Mm. Um, well, South Africa has been a big part of uh, what's been going on in astronomy um, around the world. So we have SOL, we have a very large optical telescope. Now we're gonna, we have Meerkat now, and you know, this is gonna be, everybody's gonna want to come here or want to be involved somehow with, with South African astronomy. Um, so, and the nice thing is that it's across different movements. It's not just one, one thing. So we have the optical, we have the radio, and then in Namibia, we have PATS, which works in the gamma rays. So this is, this is covering, and also we have an infrared telescope here. So this is, you know, we've got all bases covered. So you yourself are actually in like an optimal position. You finish your PhD, you're researching, all of this stuff is happening around you. It's so mm -hmm. exciting. Yeah. There's so much to see. Yeah. What kind of advice now would you give to like a young astronomer, maybe that's still in the undergrad, that's interested? Yeah. Maybe they don't even know about all of these opportunities. Like, what advice would you give them? Uh, we are living, if you are interested in astronomy and you're in undergrad, you're in a perfect position. This is the best time to do astronomy because, like I said, everything is, is set up for, for astronomy here. We have Meerkat, we have SALT, you know, you, and through this you get uh, student training that no other student uh, in the world can get. So mm. you get access to world-class instruments at a very young age. And there's also, with these coming, there's also opportunity for scholarships and stuff like that. So this is the best time to do astronomy. Um, what a time to be alive. What a time to be alive <laughs> if you want to be an astronomer. Thanks for listening. And a big shout-out to Utsumaleng Monokeng 
and Anthony Mitas for making time to chat with us. You can connect with the Tumuleng via his Twitter handle at IamMatuba, and you can visit Salt any time in the year to do your own stargazing. We suggest a summer trip to make seeing the stars more likely. If you want to find out more about study opportunities, you can Google the Astronomical Society of Southern Africa. And you can connect with us on Instagram via at Superposition Podcasts. Thank you for listening.